Uh, well, good morning and welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. My name is Marshall Brown. I'm one of the pastors here. As I do ask you to keep your uh, Bibles uh, open, page 1016 uh, in the Pew Bibles, or at least your bulletin. Well, I'll be referring to that passage. I want you to be looking at that for two reasons. One, to see where I'm getting the points I'm making, and two, to make sure I'm making the points that the Bible makes. Um, I do have one more announcement, an additional one that Chris made, and that is... Uh, I want to, that I want to highlight. That's the men's retreat that's coming up October, September 30th. This is in the back of the bulletin on the website as well. September 30th through October 2nd. It's going to be a great time. Uh, we're going to go up to Lake Geneva like we did two years ago. Obviously, the pandemic, we did not go last year. But um, it's going to be a great time. Great meals, great fun, good time with men. It's not just golf this time. There's golf, there's fishing, uh, there's going to be some shooting, like sporting clays kind of thing. There's going to be boating or just hanging out and relaxing. It's going to be a great time. Nick and I will both be doing some of the teaching, and you can sign up by emailing nick at gracenorthshore.org. So uh, please come out for the men's retreat. It's going to be a really good time, I promise, September 30th and October, uh, through October uh, 2nd. Well, I do want to thank you for being here. Uh, there's a lot of things you could be doing right now. You could be at home watching the Wimbledon final. Uh, it's recorded. If you're, don't tell me what's happening. I know what happened in the first two sets. But uh, you could be going to brunch. Uh, you could be do, getting ready for the uh, soccer match uh, this afternoon, celebrating the fight last night or the Argentina win last night. I don't know what your, what your thing is. If you're a sadist, you could be home watching the morning political shows. Uh, but you have, chosen, you have chosen to be here, and that's a good decision. Worshiping the risen Christ with his people, considering his claims on our life. And I do want to welcome you to our church, Grace Presbyterian Church. Uh, what is Grace Presbyterian? Well, we are a church. And to be a church means that we are a community. And like any community, we are gathered around something. In our case, we're gathered around someone. We are gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a community that believes that Jesus is God's son, that he is God's Messiah, and that he has entered the world to save us from our sins, to reveal God's love for us, and one day to put the world to rights. So every week we come together to worship, and in many ways what we're coming to do is to rest in God's love, to be reminded of God's love for us in Christ, which is to say we come to experience our belovedness, our belovedness. And we do that because it's so easy to forget and also because we want to go out into the world, out into our workaday week, and reflect that love. Jesus says to us, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And to love our neighbor as ourself, that means we're going to have to experience God's love, our belovedness, to do so. Because to love your neighbor is very tangible. It's not just this idea of neighbor. They're, they're tangible, like it's your actual people that live under your roof, the actual people that live on your block, that are in your workplace, that are in your village, that are in our great city of Chicago. So thank you again uh, for being here. But let's turn our attention, because we're doing this, to 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11, which Liz just read. And let me pray for us before I do. You may have heard in the news, um, well, first of all, uh, perhaps, I think our largest mission partner is in Haiti, uh, El Shaddai Ministries International. Uh, Donnie St. Germain has preached here several times. I saw Donnie two weeks ago in St. Louis, or on the plane back from St. Louis, the head of that ministry. And you may have heard that four days ago, uh, the president of Haiti was assassinated. Um, and of course, that has dire implications, not just for his family, but for the whole country and even some of the uh, orphans that we support. So let me pray for them, as well as I pray for other churches and for ourselves. Let's pray. God, we come uh, before you this morning in the safety and relative security of the place where we are, but our 
minds, I want to take us real quickly, God, to Haiti, uh, the assassination a few days ago of Juvenal Mose. We pray for that country. We pray for his widow as she recovers from the wounds she receives in Miami. Pray for their children. Just this awful loss, this infringement of their personal property. I don't know the politics. I don't know what's happening, Lord, but I know that murder is awful, and it's just terrible. God, we pray for Donnie St. Germain and his ministry there. We pray, Lord, for just the unrest that something like this will cause that will reverberate through society and will most likely impact most of all the least uh, folks like the orphans and the widows. So God, have mercy on those folks. Help us to know what it looks like to love our neighbor to the south. God, we also want to love and pray for our neighbors around us. I want to pray for a couple of churches. I pray for First Pres Church in Evanston. Uh, Ray Hilton also returning from a sabbatical. I want to pray for Covenant Presbyterian Church in the city and their pastor, so beloved, Aaron Baker. But God, I pray that you would meet us this morning in the teaching of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we are, uh, we are social creatures. That's what it is to be human. We're social creatures. And how we behave, even what we wear, is often determined by what time it is, by what time it is, and where we are headed. Let me ask you a little thought exercise. How would you expect to behave and dress if you were headed to a 7 p.m. wedding reception at the Ritz-Carlton downtown? How would you behave? How would you dress? Well, what if you were headed downtown for a 7 p.m. kickoff of a Monday night football game between the Bears and the Packers? Maybe dress a little different, behave a little different, different expectations. Well, what if you were headed to a 120 uh, first pitch of a game at Wrigley with some college friends? How would you behave then, and what would you dress like? Well, what if you were headed to a 1 o'clock cookout in my backyard, your pastor's backyard? Like how, how, you know, uh, how we behave, how we behave is determined by what time it is and where we are headed. We're in the midst of a study of 1 Peter. Nick Swan and the team have been teaching about the fact that Peter tells us we are elect exiles, that our citizenship, our true citizenship is in heaven, and this idea that our current life is rooted in our future hope. And in many ways, the question that the Apostle Peter is asking in 1 Peter is, how then shall we live? We're not home yet, We're in a time of exile, a time of suffering, a time where we're facing trials, we're exiles. How then shall we live? And how should we live? How should we live is determined by what time it is and where we are headed. How we live is determined by what time it is and where we're headed. So those are my three points we're going to walk through and look at every verse. What time is it? First point. How shall we live? How then shall we live? And then where are we headed? First, what time is it? What time is it? Now, look with me, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, the first part of it. It's an odd sentence. The end of all things is at hand. As the New International Version says, the end is near. Now, this is a statement about time, okay? It's a statement about time. It says the end is upon us. And I wonder if everybody could, you know, if we could know what everybody was thinking. What do you think of when you hear language like that? The end is near. The end of all things is upon us. I would imagine some of us think of a guy with a cardboard box standing on a milk crate saying, repent, the end is near. Now, not so many years ago, we would have thought that guy was crazy. But in an atomic age with increasingly worse earthquakes, tsunamis and hurricanes and fires and a pandemic, doesn't seem quite as crazy, right? 
Um, some of you know I drove across the country on our sabbatical. On, on the, I went out kind of on the southern route along the border. I went through God's country. This Texas. Um, in case you didn't know, that's um, where I'm from. Uh, but then on the way back, we drove up the coast of Colorado, uh, California, and then I came across Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And I, maybe you knew about this. I did not. There's this national monument called Craters of the Moon National Monument in Idaho. Do you know about this place? 700 square miles of lava field, okay? All right. There's, there's, and right in the middle of it, there's a 52-mile crack that they call the Great Rift. There are 55 volcanic cones. There's 14 fissures. It blew as recently as 2,000 years ago. Now, the crust has shifted. Our, our Earth's crust is, That hot spot is now underneath Yellowstone, thus the geysers. It's going to blow again, okay? Um, and here's the crazy thing to me. Right next to that Great Rift, right next to it, you drive out of uh, Craters of the Moon National Monument. The, almost the next thing you come across is the Idaho National Laboratory, an 890-square-mile facility that is the largest concentration of nuclear reactors in the world. I'm not a scientist. But I just don't know if it's really smart to put a lot of nuclear reactors above a hot spot. Call me crazy, okay? The point is, the end is not so far-fetched. But that's not exactly, that's not exactly the point that Peter is making here. You see, Peter and the scriptures are not concerned about kings and kingdoms and worldly history. To quote Hamilton, oceans rise, empires fall, da, da, da. No, he's not as concerned about that. Peter is concerned about the king and the kingdom of God and the end of redemptive history. What Peter is saying is that everything the Bible said would happen has happened, except one thing. Everything the Bible said would happen has happened, except one thing. Let me give you a brief survey of redemptive history. God created in the world his great love and to display his glory. Some of the verses that Diana was talking about, God created the world. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, plunged us into sin, the wreck that we have created. But God, because he loves us, he started this reclamation project, this redemption project, and he sent forth this group of people called the Israelites who were good in some ways, but they failed profoundly. They were sent into exile. And so from that, God raised up a son of Israel, a greater son of David. And his name was Jesus. He was born of a woman. Jesus was born. He lived. He had this amazing ministry. And then he died for the sins of the world. But that wasn't the end of the story. He was raised from the, to the newness of life, and then he ascended to God's right hand, and he sits where he reigns. And then he sent forth the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that we might have an experience of God within us. Again, everything the Bible has said would happen has happened, except one thing. The end is at hand. All that is left is for Jesus to return, to come again on the clouds, to unite heaven and earth, to wipe away our tears, to make all things new, and to reign in fullness over a renewed and restored earth. Praise God. That is all that is left. The end of all things is at hand. That's what time it is. Now, Peter may or may not, we don't know, have expected this to be imminent. Okay, 2,000 years have passed since he wrote these words. But the fact of 2,000 years is irrelevant for at least two reasons. One, God is outside time. In, second Peter, in, the, in Peter's second letter, Second Peter, he quotes Psalm 90 verse 4, where he says, A thousand years, a thousand years are but yesterday when it is gone to God. A thousand years in God's sight are nothing. They're like a watch in the night. God is outside of time. But also, also the end is at hand 
simply means that from the perspective of redemptive history, there is one final act to come. So we don't know when the end might be. People as august and learned as Martin Luther uh, 400 years ago expected the end 500 years ago to be imminent. So that's what time it is. The end is at hand. We are living, we are living in the last days. So it begs a question. If you knew the world as we know it was going to end today at 4 p.m., right? 4 p.m. Or tomorrow at 10 a.m., what would you do? If you knew the world was going to end, what would you do? Somebody asked John Calvin this. I couldn't find the citation. If, so, if, it, if it's not John Calvin, it's somebody else answered this way. He said, I would finish. What would you do if the world was going to end? Well, what would I do? I'd finish doing what I'm doing, and then I would do what's on my calendar. That's what he said. I would finish doing what I'm doing, and then I would do what is next on my calendar. Translation, nothing different than I planned. Now, let's be honest. That seems a little super spiritual, okay? You know, John, you wouldn't have at least left work early. I mean, come on, right? But the point, but the point is well taken. If we are living as if the end is at hand, knowing the world would end would not change how we're living. Which brings us to a second point. How then shall we live? Because Peter said, the end is at hand, therefore. The end is at hand, therefore. And then he's going to tell us four ways to live. How then shall we live? And I got four points out of this little second point. Eat, pray, love, and serve. Eat, pray, love, and serve. Now, hopefully, what I've got to say to you is better than the book and the movie, uh, neither of which I particularly enjoyed, Eat, Pray, Love. I love Julia Roberts. She's great, uh, but uh, this wasn't her finest film. Uh, how then shall we live? I'm actually going to reorder those words, though. Pray, to follow the verses, pray, love, eat, serve. First, how then shall we live? We shall pray. Look with me, verse 7, the second half of it. The end is at hand, therefore, the end is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, so much can be said about prayer. But fundamentally, fundamentally, prayer is communing with God, which is just religious language for being the friend of God, being with God, relating to God. Prayer is, at its essence, taking your real heart to the real God with your real concerns, your real joys, and your real pains. And hearing from him. And the reality is you're not really going to do that if you're out of control. Thus the self-controlled piece here. But taking your real heart to the real God. In many ways, in many ways, these verses, and if you have your Bible, look with me. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4, which are not printed in the bulletin. In many ways, these verses are the positive of which last week was the negative. Next, last week, the passage Nick preached on talked about lust and rage and orgies and exploitation. And in many ways, these verses are saying it's prayer, not rage. Love, not lust. Hospitality, not orgies. Service, not exploitation. Now, I'm probably going to preach again on prayer uh, pretty soon. Actually, prayer is, not, is best not preached on, it's best experienced. But I think I am going to preach on it again in the next couple of months. Let me say two more things about prayer before we move on. The first is this. Karen Jobes, a commentator, says this. The first resource for Christians living out Christ's victory is prayer. It's our first resource. It's our first resource. But I got even better news. It's not just a resource. It is not just a resource. Prayer is a privilege. It is a privilege Friends, if you are in Christ, you are friends with God. You are friends with God. And here's the deal. He knows your secrets. You know that thing you're trying to furiously keep from your spouse or your children? He knows it. 
So you can talk to him about it. You might as well. It is a privilege to pray, to talk to God. So the first thing, how to live, because the end is the end, the first thing is pray. Second thing, how to live, love. Verse 8, look with me at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I prefer the, I'm not sure exactly what earnestly means. I, I don't know, I don't know if I like that word. So I prefer the translation, love at full strength. This is talking about deep love, right? It's saying love is the thing. Notice what he says, above all, above everything else, love one another. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is asked, what is the great command? What's the great command, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then when Jesus gives a new command, what is the new, what's the one new command Jesus gives? Love one another. By this, all people will know that you love me. And then when the Apostle Paul, when he's going to talk about all the gifts of the Spirit, he's going to talk about speaking in tongues and giving hospitality, administration, teaching, all these gifts. But what does he say? The greatest gift, the greatest gift is love. Love is the thing in Christian community. And he's primarily here speaking of love as an action. Now, let me be clear. Love is also a feeling, okay? A lot of times in kind of churches like ours, people will talk about love as if the feeling of love is not important. I fundamentally disagree. Feeling is important. But here he's talking about love as an action. And the reason we know that is because he goes on to say, above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, our love for one another does not pay the price for their sins or ours or the penalty of sins. Only Jesus can do that. But love sure does make any relationship in every community better. So what is love? Now, in our culture today, I think the most common understanding of love is either the feeling thing or the tolerance thing, the toleration thing, that love is tolerating people and tolerating what they believe. And I could say a lot about that. But let me just say this. That is so passive That is so tepid. Love that the Bible envisions here is active. It is bearing with others. It is forgiving them. It is serving them. My favorite definition of love, of course, comes from 1 Corinthians 13. The Apostle Paul this time writes this. He says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then verse 7, the payoff pitch. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. I love that definition of love. You see, love is costly. Here's the reality. Life in community... It's messy. Life in relationship, it is hard. People irk us. They disappoint us. They let us down. They don't do what we want them to do. They wear a mask when we don't want them to wear a mask. They don't wear a mask when we wish they would wear a mask. Too soon? I don't care. Uh, You see, because above all, we are called to love one another. Love one another. Above all, I got a plan. You know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start passing out, passing out Chicago's greatest export. Of course, you know what Chicago's greatest export is. Garrett's popcorn. Garrett's popcorn. And why am I going to, my in-laws, every time they come down, this first thing they do, Garrett's popcorn. Why? Because you know what the side of a bag of Garrett's popcorn says? Any, nobody? Come on. 
Love is messy. On the side of every bag, it says love is messy. Community is hard. Relationships are difficult. And so love is messy. You know what real love does? Real love goes to the station to pick up a friend who just got a DUI. Real love refrains from gossip, even when it would feel so good to say that thing and make them look bad and make me look good. Students, children, love makes sure that everyone at the lunch table has a place and everybody on the playground is included. You know, as I thought about this passage, I have to wonder if Peter is reflecting on his own life with Jesus. When he says, above all, love, because it was Peter who said to Jesus, Lord, how often if my brother sins against me, do I have to forgive him? Seven times? He's asking, what is the limit of love? How much do I really have to love? You know, there's a limit, right, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? You must forgive seven times. In other words, to infinity, You see, as a younger, immature man, Peter wanted to set a limit to love. He wanted to set a limit to forgiveness. But he's starting by the grace of God to see that love covers a multitude of sins. In fact, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love. By your love for one another. I heard recently of an interview, a set of interviews with hospice nurses. And, you know, you and I don't face death on a daily basis, but hospice nurses do. And the three great regrets of dying people, the three great regrets of dying people according to hospice nurses. One, I did not live the life I wanted to live. Second, I did not share enough love. And three, I did not forgive enough. Is there somebody you need to call this afternoon? (laughs) Is there not somebody you need to write a note to and tell them how much they mean to you, how much you love them? Is there somebody in this room that you need to forgive or ask forgiveness and go to above all, above all? The end is at hand. Love one another. Now, one tangible manifestation of love is hospitality. For memorability's sake, what I'm calling eat. Look with me at verse 9. Eat, hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, in the ancient world, there were no holiday inns. There were no McDonald's. So you had to rely on the hospitality of others as you traveled. Now, a couple things. Let me think that hospitality is not. I'm going to preach on this in August, I believe. Hospitality is not Nantucket Basket and Lismore Crystal. Husbands, you can ask your wife about that later. Um, Hospitality is not Martha Stewart living, right? Gospel hospitality seeks not to serve the reputation of the host, but to serve the needs of the guests. It includes cooking dinner for other people, but it doesn't stop there. Sometimes we think we can't do hospitality because we don't have people in our home or whatever. It includes that, yes, have people in your home. But it also means babysitting for people who need a babysitter. It means watering their plants, cutting their grass. It means serving as an usher at church, or even more difficult, perhaps serving in the children's ministry. Visiting a shut-in. Going door-to-door to to nursing home. Taking your children to a nursing home. Applying for safe families. Welcoming the nations with RUFI and Ian and Hannah. Working with our youth in some capacity. Hospitality has so many different dimensions. What is it for you? I like the definition that one person gave. A def- hospitality is making room, making room for other people and meeting their real needs. What does that look like in your life? I have a lot more to say about this. I'll save it for the sermon. 
but let me, the full sermon, each of these four points could be its own sermon. But let me read one quote from a guy writing in the New York Times, Eric Erickson, New York Times, several years ago. He said this. He wrote this, I should say. This is what I want my children to know if I should die before they wake. The kitchen table is the most important tool they have to reshape their community. Preparing a home-cooked meal and inviting people over, both those we know and those we want to know, forces us to find common ground, end quote. Let me put it in Marshall Brown language. Hospitality can transform the North Shore. Who we eat our meals with, who we invite into our homes can transform the North Shore for the glory of Christ. And don't miss the last part of that sentence, though, verse 9. Look at, look at it. What's it say? Without grumbling. <laughs> uh, just in case Peter needed to be clear, without grumbling. Does your engagement with other people, with our church, look like that? Without grumbling. So pray, love, eat, and then fourth, serve. But verses 10 and 11, verse 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As, God's steward of God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I want to note three things about this idea of serving one another. The first is this. Everyone in the sound of my voice and everybody watching on TV, welcome to you. I forgot to say that. Everyone has a gift, a gift from God. If you're a follower, you have a spiritual gift. Now, Peter here divides our gifts into two broad categories, speaking and serving. You speak God's word using God's words, not our own. That's why I preach from the Bible. I ask you to look at the Bible. But then we serve one another with God's strength. Now, there's a lot of subdivisions. There's a lot of subdivisions of the spiritual gifts, but those are the basic categories, speaking God's words, serving. And here's the deal. How do you discern your gift? Well, I'll tell you how you don't. Self-examination, like just look, what is my gift? I mean, I'm not even sure I'm a believer in spiritual gifts test. Here's how you discover your gifts. You look out at the world, at the church, at your friends, and you think, what are the needs? What are the needs, and what can I do? It's real simple. What are the needs? What can I do? You can't do everything. There's some things I can't do. What are the needs, and what can I do? So the first thing, everyone has a gift from God. Secondly, your gift is received. It is received. What you have, it's from God. It is from God. Each has received a gift, Peter says. On sabbatical, um, had an opportunity to meet with a uh, very generous guy. He, gives, he told me he gives, over, he gives well over a million dollars a year away every year. Over a year, he gives over a million dollars away to Christian causes. And I, I met with him for one reason. I wanted to ask a question. I said, how did you become so radically generous? How did you become so radically generous? And he said, when I was about 40, I was doing well in my business, and I read a book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, and I learned something. He said, I learned it wasn't mine. It was a gift of God. The opportunities, the money I'd made, it wasn't mine. It was a gift from God. And when you realize it's not yours, it's easier to give it away. In fact, it's impelled upon you to give it away. Because when you realize that everything you have, your money, your house, your opportunities, your education, your intelligence, everything you have is from God. It makes it a lot easier to give it away. First of all, it's not yours. It's not yours. Your money, it's not yours. You don't believe me, but it's not. My money, it's not mine. It's his. And second of all, it's God's. So I better do well with it. And it's not just our money, friends. It's our time. It's our talents. It's our influence. 
It's our networks. It's our teaching ability. It's so many different things that are a gift from God that he gives to us. And this brings us to the third thing about these gifts. They're given to give away for others. You have a gift. You received it. And third, it's for other people. The gifts that you have are not for you to indulge yourself, but to give it away. Are you really smart? Use it to serve other people. My, one of my fondest memories, and his name bears me saying, so I'm going to say it, Robbie Holt, the smartest guy in my seminary class. I remember walking through the library, seminary's grad school for preachers. I remember walking through the library but the night before a final exam and seeing him tutoring this other guy. It was going to cost him grades, but he wanted this other guy to get it. He was really smart, but he didn't hoard that so he could get the highest GPA. He gave his gift away. What is it? Do you have a large home? Host people and events. Do you have a second home? Don't offer it to me. I'll ask, okay? Uh, I'll ask you for your... But find somebody. Find somebody who needs a vacation place to go. Don't, again, the point in these gifts thing is you don't ask, what is my gift? You look out to the world. What are the needs? What are the needs? And how can I meet those needs? Three quick things about these four things. If you're lost in the outline, so am I. Um, three things about how should we live. First, okay? Eat, pray, love, serve, right? Three things about those. First... The importance, the importance of loving one another like this. Look with me, verses 8, 9, and 10. Do you see one phrase that recurs three times? Verse 8, one another. Verse 9, one another. Verse 10, one another. As elect exiles, the pressure on the outside is building around Peter, and it's building around us, okay? The pressure on the external pressure from the world is building. But what matters most is how we treat one another, our internal strength we got to eat, pray, and love. That is what is most important. Secondly, this, so first it's important. Second, it's radical. You know, when Peter chose not, when he chose not to heap glory on people high in the social order and instead chose to focus on the crucified Christ and our service of one another, that was revolutionary in the Greco-Roman world. And it's still revolutionary today. It's radical. This one another but it's not just important, and it's not just radical. The third thing about this one-anothering, it's also a strategy. It was a strategy for engaging the wider Roman world, and it should be a strategy in our world as well. You know, there's a lot of conversation today. There's a lot of consternation today about the culture and where it is headed. And that is true, and there's a place for that discussion and for that concern. Maybe a smaller one than we think, but here is the deal. Let me tell you something about the prevailing beliefs in our world. There's no ultimate hope. There's no joy that can sing through tragedy. There's no grace. There's no love. And we have all those things. We have hope, joy, love, grace. And the world doesn't have those things. God calls us to be like his son who so loved the world that he gave himself, that he died. And so as we do these things to one another and to others, it is a strategy for a world desperately in need of all of that. I love what Rosario Butterfield says. I could have put this quote in several points in this sermon, but I'm putting it here. She writes this. In post-Christian communities, your words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex. End quote. Well, so we've seen what time it is. And we've seen how we should live. Well, where are we headed? Third and final point, and quickly, where are, where are we headed? Verse 11, the second half of it. All of this, 
all of this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where are we headed? We're headed to a world where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where are we headed? We're headed to a world where his kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are we headed? We're headed to a world where the, uh, where the rocks will cry out, the trees will sing, and all God's people will say, Hallelujah, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and dominion forever and ever. And why are we headed there? Why are we headed there? Because to Him, because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. So how should we live? How should we live? Well, what time is it? What time is it? And where are we headed? We're about to come to the Lord's Supper. We're about to come to the Lord's Supper. And in so many ways, the Lord's Supper is an illustration. It's an illustration for every point of my sermon. Every point of my sermon is illustrated right here. Because the Lord's Supper tells us what time it is. Jesus, on the last night of his life, he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal because I won't eat it again until the new heavens and the new earth. What time is it? It's this time. The Lord's Supper literally is praying, eating, loving, and Jesus serving us. And the Lord's Supper tells us where we're headed. We're headed to table fellowship, communion, relationship with the living God. This sermon tells the story of my sermon and this text. But you know the number one thing this, story, this table tells us right here? The Lord's Supper. We'll come to it in just a moment. We need his resources. Every week we come back to worship. Every week we come to the Lord's table because we forget to love. We forget to pray. We forget to serve. We forget those things. And we sin. And so we come back to experience by faith the living Lord Jesus giving us his grace. We need him more. And this table says, I offer myself. By the grace of the gospel and the application of the Holy Spirit, come, taste, and see that I am good, that you may do these things, that you may love and live and serve as I call you to. So let's come to this table in just a moment. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you that you don't just call us to live a certain way, but you give us the resources to do so. So God, we confess our sins. But more than that, we confess your greatness and the resources you give for us to live the life that you have called us. Be with us for Christ's sake. Amen.